We step into a unique time. If you're new to New Hope, um, we started soliciting questions uh, over a month ago for individuals to weigh in on their um, areas of interest, wanting to know what does the Bible have to say about blank. And so we titled it, You Asked For It. Last week we covered uh, 12 individual subjects. Each one of them could have been a standalone teaching. But they were more like general theology, and we moved through them. I told you this week is going to be harder uh, with the material that's asked, and next week is harder yet. So if you've read through the questions already this morning, maybe you got one of the bulletins and and you found the notes inside, um, you found there's some pretty tough questions that came along. And we're going to approach those appropriately. I just want to frame for you, especially if you weren't here last week, how I'm approaching this. And I'm I'm using James as my background. James 3, uh, verse 1 says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And I take this very, very seriously. While I'm accountable to you, I am more accountable to God. So while I may be afraid of you, I'm more afraid of Him. Okay? I understand the pecking order and who I stand before. And I stand with the Word of God in front of me. And so I have to teach accordingly to what I understand God. We step into a a unique time. If you're new to New Hope, um, we started soliciting questions uh, over a month ago for individuals to weigh in on their um, areas of interest, wanting to know what does the Bible have to say about blank. And so we titled it, You Asked For It. Last week we covered uh, 12 individual subjects. Each one of them could have been a standalone teaching. But they were more like general theology, and we moved through them. I told you this week is going to be harder uh, with the material that's asked, and next week is harder yet. So if you've read through the questions already this morning, maybe you got one of the bulletins and and you found the notes inside, um, you found there's some pretty tough questions that came along, and we're going to approach those appropriately. I just want to frame for you, especially if you weren't here last week, how I'm approaching this. And I'm I'm using James as my background. James 3, uh, verse 1 says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And I take this very, very seriously. While I'm accountable to you, I am more accountable to God. So while I may be afraid of you, I'm more afraid of Him. Okay, I understand the pecking order and who I stand before. And I stand with the Word of God in front of me. And so I have to teach accordingly to what I understand God's Word to say. We know that questions always lead to more questions, right? So we're going to do our best to get through them. A lot of questions came back this week. You may have looked in your notes and saw there were some additional ones this week. Those were kind of some follow-up that we'll actually get to next week. But the primary ones are in bold print in your notes this morning. Understand, this is not information for the sake of information. It's not what it's about. This is about building a community of believers Understanding how God's Word speaks into our lives. So just know this, I want to be a great steward of your time. And the staff sit together throughout the week and plan these things out so that one, you have opportunities to connect with each other. Two, that you're edified by being in church together. But three, more importantly than anything, that you meet the living God. That you have a God encounter by examining His Word. And here's the hard thing. God says His Word is alive He says it's active, and he says it's sharp. That means it hurts. It cuts. God's word does things, 
and not always things that make us feel comfortable. But we recognize it as truth. So even when it's hard and when you really wrestle with it, know that God is speaking into your life for your good, not for your harm. That's what He means. So we're going to take on the issue of Satanology and demonology first, but before we do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me that we would ask God's Spirit to be our guide. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before You recognizing that all of this would not matter one bit if You were not present, if Your Holy Spirit was not our teacher and our guide. So we invite the presence of Your Spirit. I know Your Spirit is here in the presence of Your people indwelling us, but Father, we ask that Your presence would brood over this auditorium. That it would be You whom we hear from. And that Your Word would indeed be alive. Bring us that, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, the first questions that come up related to Satanology or demonology, I have a book to recommend to you. You'll see it on the screen. It's, it's called The Serpent of Paradise by Erwin Lutzer. If you're interested in doing some external reading, excellent source of material. Um, first question that came up was, what does Satan look like? And in follow-up to that, another person asked, Satan is referred to as the morning star, but Christ is also referred to as the morning star in Revelation 22. And then there was a third component that went along with it. Um, This person said, I tried to do a study on Satan and was quite surprised to not have a clear image of him. I had the demonic horns in my head, but I also know of him to be a beautiful angel. To try and discuss this with a non-believer made me feel kind of stupid, being that this is the arch enemy I should have known more. Well, we understand that Satan was created as a holy angel. and, And that's why we have this image in our head of him being this angel because of this description in Scripture. Isaiah actually tells us a name that was associated with him. And the name that is common to be used today is the name Lucifer, which comes out of Isaiah. Let me read this for you. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Well, that phrase, star of the morning, is the same one that this person was talking about in their question when they said, well, wait, that's Jesus' name. How can Satan have that name as well? Well, understand that this phrase, star of the morning, is actually just that. It is a phrase. It's not a name or a title. It's the Hebrew word hallel. So if you've ever heard of the Jewish people singing a hallel, which means a praise to God, this word, Hebrew word hallel, literally means the sense of brightness or the morning star. So Jesus is referred to as the true and bright morning star. All of the angels, were told, when they were created, were also called the bright ones or the shining stars. See, that's a phrase. That's why this term was used of Satan, the son of the morning. In the King James Bible, when King James authorized it to be written, he allowed those individuals to take a Latin translation of a Hebrew word, the word Hallel, and translate it over into Latin, and the word became Lucifer, and the name stuck people began referring to Satan as Lucifer, which is a Latin name. But that is not a name that belongs to both Jesus and to Satan, just so you're clear on that. So what does he look like? Well, we have this description of Ezekiel 28 of what he looked like. Look with me on the screen. You'll see this, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. So you ladies think you got jewels this morning? 
There's a new definition. This person, this individual, this created being was covered in precious stones. It's one of the reasons we're told that he was the bright, shining ones reflecting all of this. But as a result, according to Scripture, he became arrogant, prideful, boastful because of his superior intellect, unlimited, it seemed, power that God had given him as this created being. And because of his status... He wanted to sit on a throne above God, and so he said, I will exalt my throne above the throne of the Most High. For that very reason, God permanently removed Satan and cast him down. We looked at that a little bit last week. As we talk about Antichrist next week and end times things, we'll get back into that again. What does Satan look like today? Well, today we all have this image in our head of this guy with a red suit and little horns and a pitchfork, right? Some people see him with this dragon's tail. Well, where does that come from? Well, some of it comes from the book of Revelation in the sense that he's described as the great dragon. Some of it comes from medieval art in the 1500s, misinterpreting the Bible. The truth is, what culture presents Satan as, as a beast, is not consistent with Scripture. Matter of fact, you won't find a definition of what Satan looks like today in the Bible. When you look back at the Isaiah and Ezekiel passages, it says you were, your character was, you had been. Everything's past tense. So there's much that's lost about his appearance. Here's what we do know about him today. 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He wants what he once had. He wants worship, he wants praise, he wants adoration, he wants to be exalted, so he covers himself as an angel of light. But just as sin looks attractive at first to us, later revealing death, Satan seeks to deceive us, making himself look good, appearing as something other than what he is, which is pure evil. So Jesus has a name for him. It says this in John 12, 31, he's called the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this world. Here's what I know about him in your life. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the deceiver. He is the tempter. One person came to me after the last service and said, can he read my mind if he's that intelligent? No, he cannot. He's not omniscient. He's not God. He doesn't know all things, but he knows your weaknesses and he knows how to play on them. And he has a horde of demons at his disposal. So he is the one who comes after you. Why? Because he hopes to gain the worship of the world. And you'll learn about that a little bit more next week. He has no physical likeness which we can grasp. He's a spirit being. The demons are spirit beings. So by their very definition, they're non-physical. And to try and put physical definition to them is not something that we can do or understand. Here's what he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe he's truth when indeed he is falsehood. So that's why we see this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's the next stage of questions that came out of Satanology. These three that you'll see, they're in your notes as well. In an effort not to overestimate or underestimate Satan's power, how do Satan and his demons work? Can we be demonically oppressed or possessed? If so, why do Catholics seem to be the only ones performing exorcism? Third, How much can Satan and his demons really do to Christians versus non-believers? First understand, I am not a guy looking for a demon behind every bush, okay? That's, That's just not who I am. But I want you to know they are real. I have encountered them in my own life in present day age. You obviously see evidence of them in the Bible. And they do seek to destroy. They are the fallen ones. 
But there is a distinct difference between demon possession and demon oppression. And it's very important that you as believers understand that. Matter of fact, I'm going to take you to a passage where you see demon possession in the Bible so you understand a physical appearance of it. Demons do have the ability to control the thoughts and the actions of individuals whom they possess, even to the degree of being able to speak through them. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see this church example. The the Jewish form of church is called a synagogue. Luke 4.33, and a demon shows up in church. In in the synagogue, verse 33, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you just come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you see examples throughout the Scriptures where demons who are possessing people throw them into fire, throw them into water. They roam cemeteries naked. They scream out with guttural voices, obviously controlling them physically. That's demon possession. Christians, however, experience demon oppression in which demons bring attacks against us. Demons cannot possess a believer in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, as you look at the Bible and you see throughout the New Testament many passages dealing with spiritual warfare, but what you will find very clearly is there's no instructions for a believer to cast a demon out of another believer. It just isn't going to happen. It is absolutely unthinkable that God would allow His own who were purchased and bought with the blood of Christ, who are the new creation to be possessed by a demon. God is not going to compete for space with a demon. It just isn't going to do it. You are the believers in God who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we're told this in 1 John 4, 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The them that passage is talking about is evil spirits. You have overcome them because of the one who indwells you, the very spirit of God. So what's going on with exorcism? What's going on with demons being cast out? A legitimate question. Well, we see a purpose in it in the disciples performing exorcism. Let me take you very quickly to a passage where they were doing this. We see this in Luke 10. Jesus had sent out 70 disciples, gave them authority, and they came back. And this is what they reported in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What's going on there? Jesus is showing his dominion even over the demonic world. The actions of the disciples are verifying something. They're verifying that they're acting in the authority of Jesus' name, and they're acting completely under his authority. Now, it's obvious what's going on here is training for them, very important to the training of the disciples, but it appears something happens gradually throughout the New Testament. It appears that exorcism is exchanged for evangelism. Individuals who were previously practicing casting out demons begin leading people by the tens, by the hundreds, by the thousands to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's this really significant shift in the New Testament regarding demonic warfare. Romans to Jude, the teaching books of the New Testament, show lots of demonic activity. But in every case, believers are told to stand firm against the attacks of Satan, put on the full armor of God, to resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's no instructions necessarily given to cast demons out of others, not meaning that it doesn't happen and it's not significant. But that's not the priority. The priority is this, to lead a person to faith in Jesus. 
that leads to their spiritual well-being. So that puts to death the issue of who's got control over who. So we stand in the truth of the word and in the name of Jesus, and that puts final resolve over to who controls what. So we get this next question that came, and I'm not quite sure of the angle it's coming from. I just wanted you to see it, and I'm going to try and interpret the best way I can. He quoted Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6.12, What part of me is interacting with this spiritual world? Wasn't quite sure how to interpret that, but my experience, having encountered demonic activity, all of you is interacting with the spiritual world. Your soul, your spirit, your mind, physically, when you encounter that, you'll know precisely what I mean. Here's what I do know for sure about Satan and his activities. His doom is sure, to quote a really old hymn. Look with me up on the screen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, we'll, we'll put an end to the Satanology thing and move into the next category. I titled it WWJD. I know you've seen the bracelets, What Would Jesus Do? It's, it's really couched under morality. M- morality specifically, our conduct And I want you to hear me on this, church. If my passion begins to leak out in this category, understand this is very, very personal for me on multiple levels. I will explain that as we move forward. First of all, I am passionate for the truth of God's Word. And when individuals seek to distort God's Word for their own personal agenda, I know it grieves God deeply. So we have to make sure we understand what is God saying. Here's the great thing about the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning. The great thing about the Bible is this. God makes it really, really clear that what he says does not change with culture. It just doesn't. The word of the Lord stands forever, right? We understand that. So look with me on the screen. Here's some great passages. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus said that himself. So that means 6,000 years ago when God was speaking is just as relevant to what he has to say today because he never changes, church. He never changes. That's why Scripture says this, James 1.17, is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And he also says this, for I, the Lord, do not change. Here comes the first morality question. The topic of war is often debated. Can Christians rightly participate in war? A little more meat behind this question. It goes on like this. My natural response is yes. However, Jesus' own words, love your enemies and turn the other cheek, seem to discourage Christians' participation in war, if even for a just war. Next one that came behind it. What does the Bible say about war? Third one, big question is this one, really. Is killing in war... A sin. Well, war involves killing, right? There's no way around it. War involves killing. We know murder is sin. So we're left with this really big question. Is murder and killing the same thing? Exodus chapter 20, God says, you shall not murder. Is murder the same as killing? Uh, You have to ask yourself this question. What particular boundaries do you put around this argument? What if it's your family 
that spared because of a just war? Was Adolf Hitler and his regime put down because of a just war? Is there evil in this world? You're going to find many wars in the Bible. There's wars of conquest, there's civil war. Did you know there's actually war in heaven that the Bible refers to? We understand specifically that when Jesus returns, the second coming of Jesus, when He comes, He's coming to wage war. His purpose in returning is not just to remake the planet and give a new heaven and new earth, but it's to wage war against His enemies. And I'm here to tell you, there will be no love surrounding that war. It's not a sing-in. It's a slaughter. I want to take you to a passage that will help you to see Jesus, perhaps through new lenses this morning. Go with me on the screen to Revelation 19, verse 11. John said, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadem, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Doesn't sound like friendly Jesus, does it? If at this moment you're picturing warrior Jesus, you've got the right image in your mind. Why? Because he's going to take life in battle. Why? He's the one that said, love your enemies, because there is evil in this world, and evil has to be put down. So we go on with one more verse further. It says in Revelation 19.21, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And look at this gross passage, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Uh, First, hear me very, very clearly. Not all taking of life in wartime is sin. A biblical perspective accurately is that killing in war is not equated with murder. Here's how I know this. God Himself handed out the battle plans to Joshua when Joshua went up against the city of Ai. When King Saul went up against the Amalekites, God's battle plan. When David went up against the Philistines, God's battle plan. And here's what we know about God. He never changes. And He's never going to tell His people to sin. So following God's command to wage war cannot be sinning. It would be inconsistent with God. But today, God's not handing out battle plans, is He? He's not handing out battle plans like He did to Joshua and David and Saul. Yet wars continue to be fought. Why? Because you and I live in a fallen world full of evil people. And sometimes some evil regimes have to be put down. So the Bible goes on in the New Testament to use soldiers actually as an example of those who follow Christ. Jesus had a man come to Him who was a Roman centurion whom Jesus said of this guy, this guy's got great faith. But He doesn't turn around and say to him, now that you've got faith in Me, you need to stop being a soldier. He just says, go on, back to your business, do your thing. We see examples of soldiers throughout Scripture. Here's the bottom line. Whether a Christian should serve in the military is really a matter of your own conscience. It really comes down to your own personal conviction. But killing an armed combatant in the context of warfare 
is not murder and it is not sinful in itself. I lean back into Ecclesiastes 3.8 which says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill. There's a listing of that throughout Scripture. Well, let's move forward into this next hard question. Talk to us about the nature and practice of forgiveness between Christians. A little more meat behind it. Some say there can be no forgiveness without an apology. Others say that one must forgive even without an apology. Jesus did on the cross with regard to those who crucified him. First reference I want to give you is The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. The men in the men's Bible study are very familiar with this book. We've been working through this study with Matt Chandler and The Peacemaker is an excellent piece of material if this is something you want personally more research on. Here's what the argument really boils down to. It becomes this. Are you able to move on in your life without dealing with the wound that's been delivered to you? Are you able to move forward without fixing that? My personal experience is ignoring a wound will not make it go away. It just continues to fester. So if Jesus is our model and his word speaks into this issue, we always want to lean into what he has to say as opposed to what someone else might have to say. So I recognize this is a much broader topic than we can cover in these two verses this morning. That's why I'm referring you to Ken Sandy's book, but let's see what God says in Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You know what that verse is telling you? There's people you're not going to get along with even brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps even in your own church. So God says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Because there is a possibility that you're going to have to extend forgiveness to somebody. But hear me on this. What you extend in the way of grace and mercy may not always be reciprocated back to you. You may extend forgiveness and get the door slammed in your face. Because some people like to build walls. Some people like defensive positions. So Romans goes on to say, Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Word pursue in the Greek language literally means chase it down. Hunt it down, these things that you can make peace out of. Here's my counsel to you before we move on to the next question. Be willing to draw appropriate boundaries in your life because you're not going to get along with everyone. But here's your component. As much as it depends on you, go to the length that you know you need to. Look at the Matthew 18 passage. Excellent principles about how to restore a relationship. But just recognize this. Some people really want to burn bridges. Some people are content to be the aggressors and do damage. And you have to be willing to recognize when you've hit the boundary. But as much as it depends on you, make peace with all men. Move on to the next set. This is a next set here. These these three are difficult. Why do some churches treat divorced people like second-class Christians? Think there's some pain behind that question? Look at the other two that go along with it. What happens when Christian couples, with Christian couples when one wanders? Married, not cultivating a spiritual household. Do they continue in marriage when one is a Christian and the other proclaims to be agnostic? Second and third one, does the Bible say abandonment is a valid reason for divorce and remarriage? The, the last two really kind of go together, so I'm going to connect them in just a minute. But this first one kind of speaks into it. 
Why do some churches treat divorced people like second-class Christians? I don't know why. I know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no stepladders in front of Jesus. We're all in the same field. We're tracking together. But I'm going to be the first to say, and I'm very quick to say, divorce is not God's plan. He allows for it in certain situations. But we all know, and anybody who's been through divorce understands, going through divorce is made to appear so simple by today's culture and media, making it look as though it leaves no damage whatsoever. People just move on and they're happy. We know it leaves a path of destruction. There's nothing simple about it. Why does the church react in the way that it does? I think it's over confusion over these next two questions. Not understanding what does God's Word say about this issue. When it says this, what happens when Christian couples, when one wanders, married not cultivating a spiritual household? Do they continue in marriage when one is a Christian and the other proclaims to be agnostic? And if you're not familiar with the term agnostic, it's someone who's not sure if there's God. He may be there, he may not be there, he may not be knowable whatsoever. A deist believes there is a God, but he's unknowable. An atheist says there is no God. Agnostic, somewhere in the muddy middle. They're not sure there's even a possibility. So it's obviously a person who's not pursuing a life with Christ. So next question was, does the Bible say abandonment is a valid reason for divorce and remarriage? Why do I link those two together? Because a person who's in a relationship in marriage finds themselves sometimes with a person who abandons the things of God and has no interest in a godly life whatsoever. What are we to do with that? Well, we have to look at Scripture, and Scripture is really clear about what marriage is. It's part of the creation mandate, and it's the only thing in the creation that God pronounced not good for man to be alone. Think about this. Days one through six, it's good. God said it's good. God said it's good. It's good. He gets to man being alone. He says, that's not good. So he brings man and woman together. The two shall become one flesh. We get that. We've heard that. So throughout the New Testament, we see this beautiful image that marriage represents this picture of God in relationship with His people, especially in the New Testament. Jesus is shown as the bridegroom. We're shown as the bride. The church belongs to Him. That's why this imagery is used. So because of this importance that the Bible places on marriage and because of what it pictures, this beautiful relationship, it's not surprising that God puts severe limits on divorce. Here's the confusion. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and you get these really vague ideas of divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, it gives ideas, ethereal thoughts behind it, but it's not specific. So the rabbis started developing their own interpretation. And in their interpretation, they literally were telling people, hey, if your wife burns toast, you can divorce her. It really, they ended marriages over bad meals. It, weird things like that. They, they found any excuse they wanted to to trade out wives. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he shows that the Mosaic law is not justifying divorce, but rather it limits it severely in Matthew 19. And by the time you get to Matthew 5, Jesus gives us an idea of the permanence of marriage when he begins talking about the justifiable reasons. You can look at that later, but he says specifically, the one biggie, adultery. He said if a person finds himself in an adulterous relationship, they have absolute permission to end that marriage. But then comes 1 Corinthians 7, and the question of abandonment slides in because it's part of the text of God's Word. And Paul used an illustration that's very easy for us to understand. In verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, here's the deal. 
You've got a woman who's a believer who's married to a man who says, I'm not interested in the things of God. What is she supposed to do? And then he reverses it, and he says, you've got a man who's a believer and a woman who says, I'm not interested in the things of God. Stop trying to make this thing work. I don't want it to work. Paul says, you've got to let them go. They're under no yoke. They're under no bondage. You're not under any obligation to keep that marriage continuing if they say, we don't want to be part of this. It's very hard stuff. But it's clear in Scripture there is justification for divorce, but because there's this lack of clarity, the church hasn't known how to respond to it. Sometimes, unfortunately, divorced Christians get treated like second-class Christians. Here's what we understand. The Bible has a pattern for marriage and a pattern for a very healthy marriage. And a healthy marriage is the key to success in society. And that sets us up for the next questions that are coming. So if you've been waiting for the questions on homosexuality, here they come. All right? I've got to drink some water before I do this. Can a Christian go to a gay marriage? Is it possible to be a gay Christian? Can you be a Christian and be homosexual? Clearly define the biblical stance towards homosexuals, whether or not they claim to be Christian. If you have a friend that is gay and they invite you to the wedding, is it wrong to do it? What about Christ not proclaiming homosexuality a sin? How do you discuss this with others? Feel the tension in the room building? Okay, it's real, right? I I will tell you for too long the church has ignored these issues. I'll speak to that in just a moment. Let's take that last question off the list for this reason. Does God ever change? Okay, is Jesus God? I and the Father are one. No man gets to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't have to speak again about an issue that God has already spoken about. So just so we're really, really clear, Jesus is God. He has spoken about this. So Jesus didn't need to say, you know what, kidnapping is wrong. Well, God had already spoken to that. There's a lot of things that Jesus didn't speak to. He doesn't have to speak to this specific issue. But if you've struggled with that, just respond that way. Jesus and God are one. They are the Father and the Son in unity together. So I want to refer you to a few books before we move into this because I think there's some individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction that have spoken to this far better than I can. Gary turned me on to this book. You'll see these ones referred to up on the screen. This one, Homosexuality and the Christian by Dr. Mark Yarnhouse. Really great book. It, It helps answer questions. Questions for parents, how to explain this to children, how to work through this issue. Uh, another one is called Washed and Waiting, uh, excellent book that you might want to look at yourself. And, and then this third one that I'm going to refer to in just a minute, and it's called Is God Anti-Gay? And this is written by Sam Albury. And I'm going to refer to it in just a minute because I think Sam did an extraordinary job helping us to understand how does the church respond to this? What does God's Word have to say? Here's what we know. In Western culture today, we have a term for someone who has homosexual feelings, and the term is gay. And this term gay refers to now, today, far more than someone's sexual orientation. It really has now begun to refer to someone's identity and to their lifestyle. I want you to hear me on this. You are more than your sexual attraction. 
You are more than what your sexual attraction is or your sexuality or whatever else you struggle with in your life. You are far more than that. Let me help you to put some flesh on this as Sam speaks to this. I just want you to hear a paragraph from a man who in his 40s has struggled with same-sex attraction since he was 14. And this is what he has to say about that particular issue, how we identify ourselves. When someone says they're gay, or for that matter, lesbian or bisexual, they normally mean that as well as being attracted to someone of the same gender, their sexual preference is one of the fundamental ways in which they see themselves. And it's for this reason that I tend to avoid using the term. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction. But describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. One more paragraph. Take another kind of appetite. I love meat. A plate without a slab of animal on it just doesn't feel right to me. But my love for meat does not mean that I would want someone to think carnivore was the primary category through which to understand me. It is part of the picture, but does not get to the heart of who I am. So I prefer to talk in terms of being someone who experiences homosexual feelings or same-sex attraction, SSA for short. And as someone in this situation, what Jesus calls me to do is exactly what he calls you to do. And then he quotes Mark 8.34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's a very healthy perspective. Keep that in mind as we look at this really hard passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. So right away he says, and I've underlined it, do not be deceived. Because this is a high-stakes game we're playing. There are some people who will not be in the kingdom of God based on how they respond to God's Word. So he says, do not be deceived. There's an absence of heaven in someone's future over this issue. Because they're willing to reject what God has clarified. This becomes the consummate example of someone saying, I don't care, I want my own way regardless, and who are you to tell me differently? So he says very clearly, do not be deceived. Because there are those who will attempt to alter this truth and to shape it to their liking, to adapt it to their interpretation. So I understand this really becomes a gospel issue. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that means God's way leads to life. The world's way leads to death. And to teach someone differently results in being tantamount to leading them into false truth. It can lead them directly to hell, not to the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't be deceived about this. Understand very, very clearly. Here's where my passion is going to leak out if you think it hasn't already. This is not an us versus them issue. It's not a we versus they. We all struggle with fallenness every single day. 
the, the truth of the issue is we are dealing with eternal souls, souls that matter to God. So we desperately need to understand the magnitude of our God's holiness on this issue. I have to personally lean back into my own experience to help contextualize this for you. My general experience is this. The church and Christians in general have handled this issue incredibly poorly over the last 20 to 30 years since this has come on the public scene. I only have to think back to my college days. A 20-year-old man destined for my aviation career, all of my energy was focused on aviation technology and my future as a pilot, and I was focused on the things that I believed that I was going to do after school, and one of my friends in flight school approaches me, who is a year older than me, and meets me in the student commons and says to me, Mark, i got to talk to you. I am really struggling, and I don't know what to do. Now, this guy lives in the dorm with me. He says, I am drawn to the other guys in our dorm. I don't know what to do with this. I have these same sex attractions. What do I do? I was unequipped, 20 years old. How do I respond to that? I wasn't properly tooled. This is in the 80s. So my response, you know, the safe Christian phrase, I'll pray for you, you know, I threw that out there. And it falls sometimes so short when we really don't mean it and we're not going to back it up with something. Now, I was really looking for how to build into this guy's life, and so I went looking for counsel. That night, I went and found my RA. I said to my dorm RA, hey, here's the deal. I explained to them the conversation. I said, how would you approach this? And he said, well, who is it? In that moment, I told him his name. The next day, you know, he said to me, I'll take care of it. I, I, I let that slip out of my mind. The next day, I walk out into the student commons parking lot, and I see my friend putting his luggage in the back of the car. The school had evicted him from school. Does the church respond poorly? This was a Bible college that I was in. If anyone should have been equipped to talk with him and work through this in that situation, they should have been. So if this causes tension in your life, just know that it's okay. Know that I understand. I understand because I've been there. This is an incredibly personal subject. So I come into this next word not lightly. This is the word that God uses in the Old Testament when he looks at sexual misbehavior. I want you to see the Hebrew word on the screen for abomination because it's very consistent with what he uses in the New Testament. And this word abomination is something that is disgusting to God or an abhorrence. Now, individuals in today's society, many in today's culture, are going to look at that and say, so what? I don't recognize the Bible as a moral authority. It's not significant in my life. You especially would expect atheists and skeptics to say that, right? Well, here's an atheist for you to look at, Christopher Hitchens. This is his response. And this is what I would expect out of Christopher Hitchens. What do I care what some Bronze Age text says about homosexuality? He's being honest. He's just telling you who he is. But this next individual is not an atheist. This is a God-fearing person, William Lane Craig, but he gets it right. The best way to defend the legitimacy of the homosexual lifestyle is to become an atheist. Because he's right. Because God's really clear on the issue. God speaks specifically to this. Now, here's where the struggle comes in. It's not with the atheists or the skeptics who discount God's word. It's with individuals who are practicing homosexuals who are activists, who are not atheists, who argue the Bible legitimizes general homosexual behavior. And there's three defenses that come along with it that I'd like you to hear. 
And their argument generally sounds like this. The Bible has been misunderstood where homosexuality is concerned. So I'm going to put on the screen for you six Bible passages that you can look at. Just write them down. They're not in your notes. And you can read. This is the six passages in the Bible where God speaks about the issue of homosexuality. We're going to leave it up on the screen for just a minute. Just know that Romans 1 is the primary target. And it becomes the issue of most debate. Most pro-gay advocates will say Romans chapter 1 has three possible categories to it. And I just want you to hear me as you're writing down the verses. Here's argument number one. That Romans 1 is condemning homosexual acts that occur in conjunction with idol worship in the time of the first century. Here's argument number two. That Romans chapter 1 is condemning homosexual acts outside of a monogamous relationship. And here's argument number three. That Romans chapter 1 is condemning unnatural homosexuality. Meaning that someone was a heterosexual and decided to begin dabbling in homosexuality, leaving their natural position. So we need to take just a really brief examination of Romans chapter 1. And there's no way you can be brief with Romans 1, but I'm going to do it in just a couple minutes. If you've read Romans 1 before, you know what I mean. But I'm just going to give you a cursory overview. Understand what's going on here in Romans 1. Romans was written from Corinth, which is this incredibly debaucherous city. So if Paul's going to write anything about sexual practices, he's going to write about it from Corinth. And chapter 1 turns our attention immediately to the consequences that come into someone's life when they reject God. So if you skip all the way down, if you've got Romans 1 open right now, skip all the way down to verse 19, what you see is that everyone, we're told, naturally knows there's a Creator. His argument is God's fingerprints are all over creation. Verse 21 says there's a cosmological defense for it. In other words, when you get to verse 20, he says, everyone's without excuse. We all know that there's a God. So chapter 1 goes on like this. Humanity has rejected God's truth. So verses 21 through 23 say, humankind has done something as a result of rejecting God's truth. They've exchanged what was natural for something that is unnatural. They've exchanged the natural worship of the one true God, the creator of the universe, for an unnatural worship. They've exchanged the natural use of body for the unnatural use of body. So here's just a cursory overview. When you look at Romans 1, know this. There's three times in Romans 1 when it says this, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. In each case, he gave them over to sin because of their refusal of who he is. And so it says three more times, as a result, the people exchanged, the people exchanged, the people exchanged the natural for the unnatural. So here's a 30,000-foot view in summary. Romans 1 is saying, God has innately made himself visible to everyone. There's no argument with it but he's been rejected and replaced. And because of this, God has delivered two temporal punishments. Punishments here on planet Earth. Abominable sexual behavior, it's that hard Hebrew word, abominable. Abominable sexual behavior and an immoral mind. That's what takes place in the lives of people who have rejected God. So if you want the 30,000-foot view, this is what it is. In the same way that people naturally know there's a God and are naturally drawn to worship Him but reject Him, with creation even demonstrating itself that God's got power over it, 
people naturally also and instinctively know right sexual practices because of the way that God designed the human body. That's what Romans 1 is all about. So here's the truth of this. No set of interpretive gymnastics of the words in the original language is ever going to make this text fit into a lifestyle for which people want Scripture to validate them. It just isn't going to do it. What's true of Romans 1 is true of all those other passages you see on the screen. If God says something is sin, it's sin in the eyes of God regardless of what you believe. And what you believe is not what's going to matter in the end. It's what God has said matters in the end because his word is truth, church. And that's why it's so hard to hear because of this really big argumentative question. What if God made me this way? I know you've heard it. So let's just not ignore it and say it's not there. That's a hard question. What if God made me this way? I I told you I'm going to read one more time from Sam's book because he speaks to this issue as a heterosexual male. I can't speak to this as authoritatively as a man who has a same-sex attraction. And he has a brilliant insight. So I first want you to see his quote, and then I'm going to read the paragraph that leads up to the quote. But understand his perspective and how he stated this. Desires for things God has forbidden are reflections of how sin has distorted me not how God has made me. A powerful statement. Now listen to this paragraph that leads up to that sentence. Paul describes both lesbian and male homosexual behavior as unnatural. This is clearly a massive thing for the Bible to say and correspondingly a very hard thing for many people to hear. Some have wondered whether unnatural might refer to what is natural to the people themselves. If so, Paul would be talking about heterosexual people engaging in homosexual activity and thereby going against their natural orientation. Paul would therefore not be condemning all homosexual behavior, but only that which goes against the person's own sexual inclinations. But attractive as it may be for some, this view cannot be supported by the text. The words for natural and against nature do not describe our subjective experience of what feels natural to us but instead refer to the fixed way of the things in creation. The nature that Paul says homosexual behavior contradicts is God's purpose for us, revealed in creation and reiterated throughout Scripture. Last paragraph. This shows us why it is not true for those with SSA to say, but God made me this way. Paul points in Romans 1, it is that our nature as we experience it is not natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me and not how God has made me. Now I want you to look at 1 Corinthians now through that lens. And it says this about all of us. 1 Corinthians 6.9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetousness, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Be very clear when you leave here this morning. The Bible does not describe homosexuality as more sinful than any other sin. All sin is egregious to God. All sin is offensive. 
homosexuality is one of the practices of many things on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So when we look at it, we have to see ourselves in there as well. The the Bible does not teach homosexuality as something Christians will never struggle against. It's a reality in our world, but it can't define the person. I know this, God's forgiveness is just as available to an adulterer as it is to the thief, as it is to the person who struggles with these same-sex attractions. So God promises strength for victory in Jesus to everyone who believes. That's why Jesus said, you've got to deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and follow me. Not give in to your lust. That's why verse 11 is so important. It says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So, is it possible to be a Christian who struggles with homosexual or same-sex attractions? Absolutely, yes. You can absolutely struggle with it. It was true in the first century. That's why Paul said, Some were such of you that you've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Now, here's the bigger question. Can you be a gay Christian? Well, the question is wrong. The description gay Christian is not accurate. What we're talking about are Christians who are identified by their relationship to Jesus Christ first, and their sin is something they're struggling against. So the question in reality is, who is your identity in? Are you a Christian who struggles against sin, or do you see yourself defined by the culture that surrounds you? The Father says you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Scripture confirms this. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, and if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So, my experience. Many homosexuals who become Christians have ongoing struggles throughout their life with these same-sex attractions. The Bible is clear. None of us are sinless. Look with me on the screen. 1 John 1.8. This is where we end. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Whether or not those desires exist doesn't define if a person is a believer in Jesus. The question is, what do you do with those desires? So I need to hand, end on, on a happy verse for me, okay? Because this is tense stuff. And this will take you, regardless of what you're struggling with this morning, to a place of reality about what your Jesus did for you. Let's end with this verse. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, what church? The righteousness. All the garbage of this world, all the defilement and the corruption, 